Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what was quite popular for uh, smaller operations was cocaine, local, a local anesthetic of cocaine. Surgery at the early phases was almost feasibility. You know, could it be possible? Is it even doable? And can a person survive through it? And there's instances of nurses and medical staff trying to figure out how to help an IRA uh, patient escape. So they're talking about sometimes chloroforming these detectives. Or hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar, and this is a very special episode of the show, recorded live in the Matter Hospital in Dublin. Before we go any further, I'm about to step in the main entrance of the old Victorian hospital to tell you about the fascinating journey that lies ahead of us. I'm inside what was the main entrance to the Matter Hospital through the 19th century and the 20th century. This building that I'm standing in today has played a central role, not only in the history of medicine in Ireland, but the wider political story of Dublin. It was here that victims of the 1916 Rising, those injured in the conflict, were treated. In 1917, the famous Republican hunger striker, Thomas Ashe, died here in the hospital. And later on, I'll be recording a segment in the very room where he died. Michael Collins would also have to come here during the War of Independence when tensions arose between the hospital authorities and the IRA. All those stories are ahead of us. But what fascinates me more than anything else is the story of 19th century medicine. What was it like to get an operation here in the hospital in the 1870s and the 1880s? Now, I've been making podcasts for about 10 years. I've covered everything from the Great Famine through to the story of the Norman invasion of Ireland. But it's actually the story of the Matter Hospital that probably means more to me than any of those. In fact, it was here in the Matter that I initially came up with the idea to start making a podcast. That was about nine years ago. You see, around 2009, I fell ill and I was eventually diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And since about 2010, I've had about 20 operations to treat that illness. All that surgery took place here in the Matter. I received phenomenal treatment But every time I've come here, I've always wondered what was it like in the 1870s, the 1880s or the 1890s to receive an operation. Back in the 19th century, they didn't have our modern understandings of medicine. They didn't understand pain relief. They didn't understand anaesthetics. So later on in this episode, we'll actually record a segment in what was once a Victorian surgical theatre. And we'll hear what it was like to get an operation 100 years ago. To start the show, though, we're going to go up to the archivist, Helen Madden's office, where she's going to talk us through the early history of the Matter Hospital. I'm up in the original hospital building in the archivist's rooms with Helen Madden, the archivist at the Matter Hospital. Helen, do you want to just tell us a bit about the origins of the Matter Hospital? 
Sure, absolutely. Well, the hospital originally was part of the vision of Catherine McCauley. It originated from the Sisters of Mercy order, and it was her vision to have a hospital for uh, rich and poor of Dublin. Anybody could attend if they needed, and it was to be a Catholic hospital as well. There wasn't really any kind of medical uh, access to medical uh, services for Catholics in the city at the time. So she unfortunately passed away in 1841, and then uh, the sisters kind of went towards realising her vision and they did a lot of fundraising and uh, purchased land here on Echo Street and eventually culminated in the construction of the large frontage building on Echo Street and which was opened in 1861. Maybe to explain to people at home, the buildings that we're in now are not really part of the new modern hospital which I'll record in later on today. Um, but to give people a sense of what the building looks like, it's very much a, a 19th century institutional feel, maybe rather than what maybe people think of of hospitals from hospital dramas like I don't know Eeyore or something like that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, it is kind of um, it, it's sort of Victorian, I suppose, in a way. It has these has you know huge stone steps up to it, these big portico columns and very long uh, corridors, which is actually three hundred feet in length. Very high ceilings. It kind of it does have a kind of a yeah, as you say, an institutional feel of its time though. Um, and it was probably one of the grandest buildings in Dublin when it was built originally, because it was nothing kind of no hospital like it in the city at the time. So the matter first opened its doors in 1861 and actually in front of us here you have a pretty incredible book. This is the first admissions book so we actually have the date here. I'm looking at this. It's a beautiful bound ledger uh, that's Mm -hmm. uh, probably two inches thick but we're looking at a date of September the 27th. This is 1861. 1861, yep. When the and we can see the yeah. first person admitted to the matter was... Yeah, it's actually William Rickard. William from Rickard County from County Meath. <laughs> he was aged 50. He spent 384 days in the hospital. But you can see through the first, there's 36 people on the first page. And they, that's, so in the first couple of days of the hospital up until... October the 5th the first week there's only 36 people in it so it's Mm -hmm. not maybe the matter today where hundreds or thousands of people are treated here every single day it's a much smaller institution back in the 19th century yeah absolutely I mean when they opened there was only provision for 40 beds they they could have had up to 100 with the space that was there but there was 40 initially and I think in the first year there was 195 admissions and I think nowadays 2018 there's something like tw- over 24,000 admissions so quite a leap you know as the years have progressed and services have progressed Just looking through this admissions book and it's a really incredible document of life in, ni- in the 19th century but one thing that strikes me is I mentioned it there the first person um, William Rickard spent 584 days but there's other pretty lengthy stays mm-hmm. there's a 90 days there for a guy called John Geraghty uh, and 54 days now I had uh, two really serious operations here in the matter but I would have only stayed like 14 days so I guess right. in the 19th century um, people had a very different perception of medicine or how treatment worked like to stay in a hospital yeah. for over nearly two years is quite incredible absolutely yeah well I a large part of the sisters' thinking at the time, anyway, was that convalescence was a huge part of recovery. So once you had your initial medical or surgical treatment, they made sure that you stayed in hospital, convalescing until you were ready to leave. So there was no case of, okay, you're cured, get out. You know what I mean? It was, that's why people stayed so long, because there was, they gave them the time to heal so they could go back to life, their own life. Now, later on we'll look at what the actual operating theatres were like and they're pretty fascinating places but maybe more about the treatment do we know anything about hospital food hospital food today is not exactly (laughs) one of the most uh, famous things that we associate with hospitals do we know anything about what food was like because in the 19th century this is a hospital for rich and poor and the Mm -hmm. poor of Dublin are struggling to survive at the time so what was food in the hospital like maybe compared to what they would have received at home well it it certainly would have been probably a lot more nutritional Um, the very early days of the hospital it's a a little unclear what they would have had but we know kind of from slightly later records there was an awful lot of like the provisions they purchased was meat butter eggs a lot of vegetables they grew their own vegetables here on site they had like a large allotment where the new wing is and they they had their own pigs as well so to provide bacon as well as a source of income for the hospital but we know actually there's a, a really nice source of from a patient letter from 1912 and in it he says that he's getting all kinds of delicate because he's in the hospital things like beef tea and egg flips and uh, egg flips were actually a feature of, of hospital food up until the 1970s I think was there nutritional there's kind of liquid eggs and sugar and milk and things like that so it was easy to take for patients and um, 
we, we know as well from the letter that they would have been getting probably about five meals a day. So breakfast was at half seven, then they had lunch at half ten, breakfast, or dinner, sorry, was at half two, and then they had other kind of snacks and teas and things throughout the day. So they were essentially getting five meals a day. So if you're coming from potentially like a tenement situation where you might only get one food meal, a proper meal a day, to get five, and this kind of really, it probably would have been basic, but it was healthy food. It was all with, you know, organic now or whatever, but it would have all been uh, very good nutritional food to help them recover. And then maybe moving on to the working environment in the 19th century, maybe people didn't look at it in the same way. But what were the working day, or who who actually worked here? Was there the way, like, was it trained doctors and nurses, or... You mentioned mm-hmm. religious orders there at the introduction. Yeah, absolutely. So basically when the, when the hospital opened in 1861, there was only 25 staff. So there were two full-time physicians, five surgeons, nine Sisters of Mercy who did all the nursing work. And then they had nine, I suppose, domestic servants or ward helpers, as they were called. And the... Um, sorry? Sorry, just to cut across yeah. there. Were they trained in, in the way, obviously, people, the staff here, like, training for years before they'd probably ever set foot in yeah. in wards. Were they trained or was it more kind of like care? The sisters were yeah. yeah, the sisters were actually sent by the Mercy Order over to is a very famous nurse training school in Paris called the Hotel Dieu. Okay. So they were they, that was kind of at the cutting edge of nurse training at the time. We're talking eighteen fifties, sixties. So they were sent especially to learn training and there was others that were sent to learn how to do administrative work. So they came back and they applied their training to the matter. And in later years, obviously, as more people came in, the demand for more staff grew, so they had to employ fully trained nurses, which is how the nursing school started here. And that was that started in 1891. But up until then, the sisters did all the nursing work themselves. Am I right in saying they didn't get paid? That's true, they didn't get paid. Um, they got a small, I think, remuneration from their... Uh, their house, which would have been in Bagot Street, but other than that, they did. They worked for the order. They worked for the people, and um, the the medical staff received fees from the. They received kind of the salary from residence fees for the pupils would pay to study here, and then at the end of the year, twice a year actually, sorry, they they would divide up the students' fees and each would get a dividend of six pound, three pound, whatever it was. So that was how they made their money. And that's how the matter originally financed itself obviously today it would receive capitation from the government mm-hmm. but in the 19th century it had to self-finance itself and the way it did that was by bringing in students who would pay yep. and then that their their fees were used to finance so basically if you came for treatment here you didn't have to pay that's true no you didn't have to pay basically uh, this, the, well, so this, the medical staff were paid via fees, but everything else for the upkeep of the hospital was raised through subscriptions and donations. People would donate to the hospital, and they would also have these massive fundraisers and grand bazaars and raffles, where I think the first prize in one of them was like a, a horse and carriage with two horses, you know? So they would have these annual events, and they were huge events held in the Rotunda, hosp- uh, in the Rotunda Pleasure Gardens, and that was how the hospital maintained its upkeep, and um, it financed all the building work as well through all these fundraising events it was a very difficult working environment I guess and in the mm-hmm. first decade of its history the matter had to deal with two huge uh, epidemics in the city of cholera and smallpox and smallpox that's right yeah I said 1866 was the first major event it was a cholera epidemic in the city and it was kind of the first time that the hospital had to deal with a huge influx of patients coming in at the same time so there was a lot of pressure put on what was a kind of a rudimentary staff there wasn't as many people available to to cure to treat the people that were coming in and um there was hundreds of patients came in the mortality rate for cholera was actually quite high and um, mm. the same with smallpox there was a number of outbreaks of smallpox throughout the city 1872 and then 77 as well i think and um the mortality rate was just very high because people didn't know how to treat smallpox. They didn't really know. They knew it was obviously an infectious disease, but they didn't have a specific cure for it. And unfortunately, when these people came in um, with the smallpox, it spread to the other wards in the hospital. So other patients that were here for different things got infected. So after that, the medical staff said, we're not taking in any more smallpox patients. It's just too dangerous. So after that, then after the 1870s, people had to go to the Hardwick Hospital, which was a fever hospital. So they treated everything, bar smallpox, for, for a number of years. Um, and I suppose it's understandable, you know, some of the nurses, there's one record of a nurse who was let go from her training here because she refused to treat smallpox patients. So, you know, there was an awful lot of genuine fear around it, and it was very 
difficult thing to treat in the hospital, yeah. But they managed it, though. They managed it and uh, did save some lives, definitely. Maybe more the day-to-day work or would have revolved around surgery. And next, we can actually go up and see some of these Victorian surgical theatres. We walked through what feels like a bit of a maze of corridors, and this has taken us up to where the old surgical theatres were in the hospital. As I mentioned, I actually had operations here in the, I was going to say the 19th century. <laughs> it was about 10 years ago when I had operations here. But for that to happen, the original uh, 19th century theatres were obviously overhauled. But what we're going to talk about now is what those operations were like in the 19th century when medicine, I suppose, compared to today, was in its infancy. So... Helen, if you want to lead us down, and we sure. start to make our way down to some of the old theatres. So the first room we've come into in, I guess, what you might call the surgical theatres, is a very unusual room. It's got a hole in the ceiling, and there's a balcony um, where people can look down on this room from above. And this probably is from the 19th century practice of where people would observe operations, which sounds really odd to us today. But Helen, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, operations as they would have been in the 19th century hospital? Sure, absolutely. Um, So when the hospital opened, there was one main theatre, which was the section that we're standing in now. It looks very different today because it's been subdivided and they've added in extra floors over the years. But originally it would have been one operating table over near the the two large main windows to let in as much natural light as possible. And there also would have been a huge uh, wooden seating gallery for the resident pupils to come in and observe operations taking place. Um, It would have gone... It actually would have been quite a huge space. It would have gone back to the far wall here, so it would have been room for quite a lot of students. And there was also actually a pathological museum as well, a small museum that was maintained with all kind of pathological specimens and things like that for the students to come and look at as well. Anything unusual that came in would be kept for future reference. Um, and surgery at the time would have been dangerous enough. There was a lot of risks associated with it because, of course, there was no antibiotics at the time. There was no proper anaesthetic really being used, and there was a lot of risks associated with anaesthetic as well. So I'm going to stop you just there. So yeah. when you say there's no proper anaesthetics, what happens? You, you bring someone in, say, I suppose a common o- operation at the time mm-hmm. would have been um, an amputation. Yes. So someone's getting their leg amputated. You come in, you're put on a, a, a bed, mm-hmm. and obviously they just don't go. By the late 19th century, they're not just taking out a saw and cutting off your leg. No. They are giving you some form of anaesthetic. Yes, they would, they, would have had, they would have had some, absolutely. So from we can tell from the theatre registers, what they mainly would have used would have been ether, ether gas, okay. sometimes chloroform, and also what was quite popular for... Uh, smaller operations was cocaine local a local anesthetic of cocaine which would sort of numb the area and they would they would operate away that way and um, mainly it was ether that was used and it would have been quite a it seems like quite a terrifying process in a way because they would have had a mask because called it part of a clover's inhaler as it was called to fit it over your nose and mouth and basically <laughs> one former resident surgeon who was a bit of a wit he said um, it induced asphyxia first and unconsciousness afterwards so <laughs> it was a uh, it would have been scary enough for the patient to have this to experience. Is one of them here is it? There's a glass case yes. uh, with a couple of artifacts, and there is. It's a fa- yeah. It would, that would fit over the nose and mouth of the face, and the surgeon would have to hold it down over your face, so you would have to inhale the ether. If you were claustrophobic, that would be pretty uh, unpleasant experience yes, to start on. And you have, I imagine an awful lot of people would never have had any experience of, of a surgical theatre at all. Would, wouldn't know what was. Wouldn't know what to expect. What was going to happen next? So you can imagine this getting placed over your face. So I've had, as I said a couple of times, I've had operations, but it's a very controlled um, mm-hmm. experience, and particularly when you're getting an anaesthetic, it's like really uh, there's nothing painful at all the only thing you feel is the needle going into your arm and then you're gone onto you know you're, you're hooked up to all sorts of um, um, monitors that mm-hmm. make sure that you're out I suppose and mm-hmm. um, what I'm wondering is obviously in the 19th century there none of these so this is essentially down to human um, and error by the amount of a human makes a mistake so do you have do you like People must have woken up at certain sometimes when, you know, I don't know, they misjudge how much ether they need or mm-hmm. 
I would imagine so. Yeah, I mean, as I say, it wasn't anaesthesia back then. It wasn't an exact science the way it is now. It was seen more as a procedure rather than a speciality. So the, they weren't even, there was no proper training. So it was kind of like the house surgeon would go and administer the anaesthetic and... Uh, you know, they just did whatever they, the best they could do, and hopefully the patient was unconscious when they started to operate. You know, um, but yeah, the, there were instances where to keep an eye on, the, monitor the patient. They would just feel their pulse, monitor their breathing, and we know again from the registers that people had bad reactions to it. Some people fainted on the table. Some people vomited up. You say vomited their eggs, which is how we know they also had eggs for, for food here in the hospital. Uh, people would go blue. They would cyanize. So. It, was, it wasn't an exact science and there was a lot of risks associated because if, particularly people had heart conditions as well. The anaesthetic, if you administered too much or too little, that would cause them to, their pulse to race or go slow and it would be a serious situation then. Then moving on from the anaesthetic is the operation. So we were mm-hmm. talking earlier on uh, about someone getting a limb amputated and obviously mm-hmm. in that situation there's a huge amount of blood loss. Mm-hmm that you could expect anyway but aside from that is uh, bacteria mm-hmm. and in the 19th century they didn't understand uh, and didn't have antibacteria or uh, uh, antiseptics yeah. the death rate or mortality rate in these operations must have been very high compared to today you would you would think I mean as you say there was no um, antiseptic there was no antibiotics for after the operation things like that surgeons didn't wear hats gloves they wore just a coat a white frock and it was regularly covered in blood and things like that so it would be laundered or they'd use it again for the next operation so um, yeah they did understand the principle of asepsis which was introduced by Lister in 1865 I think so they had an idea of keeping some areas sterile but um, yeah, post-operative infection was always a risk. And mortality rates, like, we can look at the operations. They didn't actually perform that many due to these risks. So in 1887, they only did maybe one to three operations a day. And mainly that would be for teaching purposes as well. So, you know, when you fast forward it again to, say, 1891, there was roughly about 492 operations, but only two people died. So... They did quite a lot of operations, but the mortality rate was quite low. So either they were very good at what they did, or they were very lucky. <laughs> I would imagine they were they were good at what they did. You know, the yeah, nurses and yeah. the sisters would have kept everything very clean, as clean as they could. And um, the risk of the post-operative deaths was very low, actually, considering what they were the conditions they were performing in at the time. One thing that's really interesting about this is obviously in any operation you need really good light. But in the 19th century, they didn't have electricity, or certainly didn't have the lighting systems that we would have today but the whole this part of the hospital was specifically designed with this in mind so maybe we can go upstairs uh, mm-hmm. and take a look at how the, this part of the hospital was laid out to maximise light absolutely yeah we'll head on there Yeah, where we're, where we're standing now um, would have originally been the roof space of the original theatre. And you can see, I can see on aerial photographs as well, it has this rather unusual fan-shaped windows. People liken it to nearly like a spaceship-type um, windows. And it was all part of the system to allow as much natural light into the theatre as possible. So, so there was two large windows down at the theatre table itself, large windows up here, and also a number of other fan lights you see two, two there and, and another couple across the way that basically just to maximise light because there was, as you say, no electricity. Uh, they did have gas light um, in the late 1800s. Gas was certainly in the hospital by then and um, there is a record of them performing operations kind of six o'clock in the evening on a winter's day so they must have had, you know, they definitely had light to, to do that. Um, and then electricity came in in 1909 and that sort of enabled them to... To, to do more operations longer and everything. Maybe just while we're here, we can talk a little bit about post-operative care in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So after an operation, you're going to be in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd imagine, kind of from some of the hospital records, we can kind of gather they would have been given... Um, small doses of ether things like that just to kind of calm down the pain I know from a a previous resident surgeon's account that a favourite among patients was a bottle of porter which was heavily laced with bromides bromides are a relaxant you know what I mean kind of so it would help you to relax and calm down and ease the pain a bit so those type of things I think they did use 
alcohol um, occasionally to, as I say, like a bottle of porter to kind of calm people down and help them recover. But a lot of times um, you kind of had to just grin and bear it. I think sometimes they, they did what they could as well. But yeah, small amounts, maybe of ether, kind of chloroform, things like that. And then in terms of visitors, today mm-hmm. it's really important to think for people to have friends, family, mm-hmm. to come in and see them. Was that allowed in the 19th century to have people come in if you'd had an operation? Um, as far as we know, it would be maybe one or two visitors. Obviously, there was a risk of bringing an infection from external, and if you're coming from, from say, a building that had something like smallpox in it, you don't want people coming in and to reinfect the hospital. Um, but in cases certainly where there was children, um, where children were admitted to the hospital from its start as well. So you would have a mother or a probably an older sister rather than a father possibly coming in to view uh, coming in to, to visit the children and the patients as well but it would mainly just have been the nurses and the doctors and the sisters that would have been on the wards more so than visitors necessarily so aside from its medical history the matter has a pretty famous i suppose political or social history mm-hmm. to explain to people it is located in dublin city center and through its history, it's been intertwined with the wider history of Dublin. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can go and see uh, parts of the hospital that have uh, where pretty famous events took place. Absolutely, yeah. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To explain to you where we are now, we've come down a floor from the surgical theatres and we're in, again, a corridor that has a real Victorian institutional feel. The ceilings are twice the height that you might expect them as you might be able to hear there's a bit of an echo in it but in many ways this corridor more than any other place in the hospital is probably an appropriate place to talk about some of the rich history associated with the matter so maybe we could start talking a bit about the 1916 rising obviously the rising took place or the, the GPO being where some of the most bitter fighting took place is only, I suppose, 500 metres away from here. Mm-hmm. So obviously the matter was part of that uh, story. It was, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of people went to Jervis Street as well, but the matter got quite a number of casualties. Um, and on the day, like most people, they didn't kind of really know what was happening until it had happened. Um, and people started to arrive on the Tuesday, which would have been the day after, actually, that, that night. And mainly it would have been injuries like obviously gunshot wounds um, shrapnel injuries things like that and uh, I think all in all there was about 24 people passed away in relation to it but as I say there's a really great account by a sister of Mercy who was working here at the time and she says she has this very vivid account of that the operating theatres were going basically night and day and there was a a small number of staff on duty when it happened one was um, Surgeon Alec Blaney and he was basically operating throughout the night throughout the day and the electricity got cut off obviously it was a kind of a a citywide thing it got cut off and he called for more candles for the Sackville Street to come in and light the theatre so he could continue to operate Um, and he said as well, you know, if they had abdominal injuries, any kind of serious injuries like that, just take off their shoes and socks and bring them straight into theatre. So it was this real sense of urgency in dealing with this kind of huge disaster, basically, you know. I suppose it is part of the 1916 Rising that we kind of forget mm-hmm. about. We tend to focus on the actual conflict itself, as opposed yeah. to, for the matter, it's very much kind of the after effect of it. And they're yeah. dealing with 
uh, I suppose the fallout of it. Absolutely. We've just stopped outside one room here because I suppose of all rooms in the Matter Hospital, this has uh, the most emotional or evocative history. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the year after the 1916 Rising, a very mm-hmm. famous, or I suppose tragic, event took place in this room. So Absolutely, we head yeah, in. we'll head in, yeah. So at the time, um, as you mentioned, 1917, there, after the fallout of the Rising, etc., there was a number of Republicans imprisoned, um, some in Mountjoy Prison, and they went on hunger strike. And one Just to these, tell people at home, Mountjoy Prison is literally across literally the road. Literally across the road, yeah. They're our closest neighbours, yeah. <laughs> right across the North Circular Road, yeah. Um, and obviously prisoners were brought back and forth for treatment from the, from the prison as well. And one of these was Thomas Ashe. And he was a um, Republican who went on hunger strike in protest at the treatment of other Republican prisoners in the, house, in the prison. Sorry. And he went through a very bad experience of being force-fed. And the procedure went wrong. It was apparently by an inexperienced doctor. And some of the, the food went into his lungs. And it had very bad after effects for him. And... As a result, he was brought over to the hospital, and he actually passed away in the matter. And it was in this room? It was in this room. It was actually, we could judge from the photographs of him lying in state, his bed would have been here in between the two windows that faces Echo Street. Yeah, it's quite incredible to see the actual place where that took place. Mm. So um, at the time when Ash was brought in, there was only one other patient in here, so they were moved out, and Ash was brought in here by himself. And he received... You know, medical care from a lot of the famous kind of surgeons and physicians in the hospital and looked after him and the Sisters of Mercy um, until he passed away Yeah, in, in the room here. And obviously then afterwards, um, it was another huge event connected with the matter as well, which was his inquest. So we actually had an event here in 2017 um, to mark not necessarily his death, but the inquest. And it was held in the pillar room down the hall as well. So um, afterwards, when he passed away, he was lying in state in here and it's estimated that 4,000 people came in through the front doors to view him as he lay here and then as I say the inquest happened two days later and a lot of the surgical staff in the hospital gave evidence and they obviously noted that he had all these marks on his face fingernail marks from being held down and force fed and um, the hospital pathologist conducted the autopsy and of course all the jury had to file out of the room and go down to the mortuary and view the post-mortem so everything was was above board and and legitimate and uh, he was the one who kind of suggested that death was caused by pulmonary edema which is fluid on the lungs caused probably as a result of his bad force feeding. So obviously the political history of the matter didn't end in 1917. It will continue, I suppose, only ramped up really after Thomas Ashe's death because two years later the War of Independence began and much of the fighting in the War of Independence took place in Dublin and it was inevitable that the matter would be involved in the care of people injured during the War of Independence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, A lot of what we know actually happened during the late 1919s, early 20s, was due to the uh, Bureau of Military Military History witness statements. And there's a number of them that show that the administration of the hospital, the medical staff and the Sisters of Mercy were, to put it diplomatically, sympathetic towards the IRA, the old IRA. Um, So whenever a a IRA man was injured, he would 99 be brought here because they knew that the Sisters were sympathetic to the cause. So they would hide these men when they came in. They would put them in various different wards. They put them in wards specifically for religious sisters. They put them in female wards, um, maybe kind of Put, dress them up, put fake hair on them sometimes just to hide them from the British authorities because the hospital was continually being raided by the auxiliaries. Um, they would often come in unannounced as well and just conduct uh, lightning raids and try and find whoever they could find. Uh, Dan Breen was one that was brought in. Uh, he was, after his um, casualty at Fernside in Drumcondra when he was injured falling through a conservator, he was brought here and of course the auxiliaries descended looking for him but he was managed to be hidden well enough and then spirited away out of the hospital um, there was another instance as well of um, some of the G-men at the time were on the lookout for patients and they'd come in guarding one and spy someone else and there's instances of nurses and medical staff trying to figure out how to help an IRA 
uh, patient escape so they're talking about sometimes chloroforming these detectives or a lot of times the nurses would, would take them into the pantry under pretense to give them a drink you know what I mean and to distract them and then the men would slip out through the mortuary entrance or slip out um, a side gate Tension though does rise between the staff in the hospital and the Republican movement this would eventually end up with Michael Collins himself having to come into the hospital. Yes, that's true, that's true. It was an incident in, in 1921, actually. There was a suspected spy was being treated in Jervis Street Hospital, which was also run by the Sisters of Mercy. And the... Uh, one of the IRA groups decided that they were going to get rid of him. So they went to the hospital and took him out on a stretcher and shot him in the street. And of course, when the Sisters of Mercy here heard what had happened, the Reverend Mother was absolutely furious and she, she, she uh, gave out to the IRA men for breaking the sanctity of the hospital and uh, told them that they were all to get out. No more IRA prisoners allowed in the ho- patients allowed in the hospital. Out you go. And it was only through the intervention of Michael Collins that had to come up and basically plow moss or as they say to talk around um, that she reneged and she allowed them to stay here but uh, Collins himself came to the hospital mm-hmm. to uh, talk to the yeah absolutely the so it's, according to the witness statements yeah absolutely so um, that was an incident that could have been could have been bad for everybody involved um, but luckily they lived to fight another day and uh, I see or, of course everything you have to remember everything happened here with the um, permission of the Reverend Mother and the sisters they wouldn't have allowed these men in if they didn't know about it, if they weren't sympathetic. So, okay. um, as I say, yeah, they, it's, to put it politely, they were sympathetic to the cause. The, the ones, that, the people that mattered, the people in positions of authority. And it seems a lot of the staff were sympathetic, definitely. So far, we've been hearing about the fascinating history of the matter. We've heard about surgery. We've heard about uh, the War of Independence. We've heard about 1916, the stories of Thomas Ashe. What I really want to do, though, as well, is go over to the new hospital, uh, because the matter is not just about a Victorian hospital where, like, <laughs> no. pretty goodish operations go on. I can testify myself uh, in the 21st century. It's a pretty incredible place. But I'm also going to meet Professor Ronald Cal, who's actually making history in this hospital mm-hmm. as we talk. And we're going to go over there and talk to him in a it's, it's kind of strange you've got two hospitals side by side you've got the building that we're in now you can probably hear a bit of the echo the high ceilings it's very much a Victorian institution and literally 100 metres away through a couple of corridors you're into this like really 21st century building so the final section of the podcast will take place over in the new hospital where we're going to look at the history being made right now in that building So we're in a totally different part of the hospital now. Uh, the Matter Hospital in Dublin, I guess, comprised of two main parts. The Victorian wing, where I was recording earlier on, and I'm now I'm here with Professor Ronan Kyle in the Whitty Building, which is the most recent development in the Matter Hospital. You might be able to hear surrounding me now a totally different environment. There's the sound probably of fans. Uh, I'm surrounded by what seems like absolutely high-tech uh, equipment. It's a phenomenally different environment than we've just come from in the old Victorian building where as Helen was describing over there the uh, it had a very Victorian feel, more like an institution but I'm just going to introduce Ronan here and maybe Ronan you might just describe a little bit about this hospital to people listening Yeah sure, so um, I mean it's a privilege to work here, it's the most modern university hospital in the country it's really 21st century feel about it and uh, certainly it gives the impression of high quality, uh, which is what we strive to deliver to our patients all the time. Um, it's high tech. I mean, you saw and discussed with, with Helen, I guess, surgery at the early phases was almost feasibility. Do you know, could it be possible? Is it even doable? And can a person survive through it? And then in the last sort of 100 years, we've moved into probabilities. Do you know, it is probably good outcomes will come from the efforts that, that we do. But we still have a minority of cases which we can't save or cure or sometimes we cause complications to in the operation. And the next phase of surgery is going to be just getting it right for every person at every time, that concept of precision medicine, to know the right thing for the right person at the right time, uh, basing our decisions on their physiology as much as on our, on, on our techniques and our, on, on, on our practices. 
So to do that, we have to uh, we we need an environment like this that lets us monitor every aspect of the operation. Anesthesia has become very very safe and almost a, a routine act to be able to put someone to sleep, operate on them, and wake them up again. We were talking about that uh, over in the older hospital and what uh, an anesthetic. Uh, must have been like in the 19th century where there's a, a certain degree of um, trust I suppose in the individual person administering it and even maybe the drugs aren't the same as what we have today but we're looking here at incredible technology that's going to monitor the person and just the, the transition is incredible coming from the two uh, having a discussion about maybe people even potentially waking up in an anaesthetic in the 19th century where obviously the body is completely monitored in this hospital. Yes, everything from heart and lungs to neuromuscular block blockade is checked so that the uh, the person can get not just one dose dose of anaesthetic at the start of the operation, but but a, con- a continuously titrated dose to make sure that they're um, to make sure that they're safe all the way through the operation. And then of course, sometimes the surgery causes uh, problems to the patient. You might have some bleeding or, or some pressure put on some organs in them and that has to be adapted by the by the anesthetic and the anesthesiologist uh, still plays a huge role despite having all this all this information at the fingertips you still do need a human to uh, interpret it and and make it uh, make it just right for the person uh, having having their surgery earlier on people have heard about history in the matter and the matter making history and maybe what we might talk a little bit about now is some of the history in terms of medical advances and in front of me here I, just to describe to people at home there's all these screens but Ronan has brought in uh, something that looks slightly out of place here maybe uh, it's a actually do you want to describe it yourself Ronan? yeah sure so this is the uh, this is what was described at the time in 1880 as the world's first practical endoscope and it made a big buzz in oh, the literature at the time uh, describe to, or tell people what an endoscope is so this is a camera that looks inside of people uh, because that's really what we want to do is operate and diagnose people with, with less and less scars and it's important that we're able to see di- diseases and then interpret them. So as part of just listening to their story, their description of their symptoms, that we're able to have a look and see uh, something inside them that explains those symptoms. And although these days we use a lot of x-rays, uh, we still use key- keyhole instrumentation to look into people's uh, joints or abdomen or lungs, but it all started with an invention by a man called Francis Cruz, who was appointed here the day the hospital opened. And within about 10 years, he had uh, d- designed, developed, and commercialized this, this, this instrument. So there's several of these around the world still. But there's a real paper trail. He's, he published papers on it. He, he was very transparent about the, the pros and cons of it and about the design of it. So this goes back to a time before electricity. There was only The only light you could get was hot light. So there's a paraffin um, lamp at the center of it uh, that you would light a taper and that gives you some some uh, some some light of course that also gives you heat uh, so that's it's encased in, in a mahogany box uh, which is elongated to let the smoke come out the top and one of the concerns in the development of it was if you were using it would the patient's uh, bedclothes or curtains go on fire so you had to keep the fire quite quite safe in them and mahogany of course in, insulated it uh, there's then quite a clever lens system that allows the light to be uh, directed down a, a stainless steel tube that could get inserted into someone's, um, and then there's an, an eyepiece to allow the diagnosing phys- physician uh, see what's happening inside them. So there was a number of firsts with this. Uh, first time people looked into the pelvis, uh, into into an ovarian cyst. First time into the lungs, a tor- toroscopy. And just to tell people at home, this is happening in the in the nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is about eighteen eighty to about eighteen. Kind of maybe ch- challenges our notions because I guess a lot of what we were talking about earlier on is like it was very basic, but. What we're looking at here is a pretty advanced, uh, or a step towards the advanced. Yeah, it's interesting. So, the, so in response to those things, there were people at that time who were trying to make for better, better yeah. care. I mean, people yeah. were aware of what's happening, and then trying to improve things. And they used tech, technology and dis, dis, design to uh, do this. It's based on a telescope or a microscope. And Dublin had quite a lot of these type of ma- manufacturers in, at that time, so you can see it's really quite be- beautifully made. Um, so, we, but we go from there uh, to more sophisticated technologies uh, that help us not just see disease, but actually do something with it, actually intervene and change the natural history of those diseases to it. Uh, we have antisepsis now, we have safe anesthesia, uh, but we still need to uh, be better and better at the operations that we're doing. 
And uh, while these are very protocolized and standardized, uh, getting them exactly right for that person's physiology as well as their pathology, getting right for their physical state as well as the disease that they have, is something that we're really working towards too. So really trying to personalize the operative extent. So then far and on from, I guess, what ultimately is quite a basic instrument, some of the stuff that goes on in the matter today, that's a very basic way of, of describing it, but... Some of the medical advancements going on here today are really mind-blowing in terms of, to be honest, I didn't even know that medicine had moved on to the level in terms of robotics, uh, the introduction of AI into medicine and how it's going to, it's really revolutionizing the way people are treated. Do you want to just give people a sense of what that is? Because when I came here to, to, to maybe look at the history of the matter, to find out that like the matter is making history literally right now was quite like mind-blowing in a way given what's going on yeah but I mean that's our responsibility that's our jobs and we're funded by the state and by people's taxes to uh, make sure we give the best of care to it so um, and also while medicine is innovative it also needs to be safe so there's in some ways it's quite a conservative profession and in some ways we haven't changed all that much compared to maybe other industries and that's correct because we need to it's really important that we uh, get it right for, for patients each time so we tend to move forward in incremental steps but yeah, there's a whole amount of stuff in different industries and technologies that tend to be, uh, that can be applied into healthcare. And you can see some of these things here. So we rarely use scalpels anymore. Uh, often it's now just the application of heat. So we use electro cautery, both to make wounds and make sure that they don't bleed. Uh, we don't really put our hands into patients much anymore. It's keyhole operations, which means you work with elongated instruments through small incisions, maybe about one centimeter. And then you have a camera that also goes into people and that puts the images up on a screen so the whole operative team can see. Uh, so you have that transparency of, of decision-making in, in a case. It's not just one person looking into a dark crevice to make decisions. Everyone else can uh, can can see it too. Um, we use these things for uh, heart and lung transplant. The, the hospital is a national centre for that. Uh, spinal in, in injuries and it's a national cancer centre too. So looking after people with uh, cancer of the breast, uh, colon and rectum and prostate is a really big part of our workload. But then there's emergency work too. So uh, you know, there's, there's that combination of being able to have highly planned uh, operative intervention and then this need to re re react still to people who uh, have problems befall them quite suddenly. So uh, this, that keeps us on our toes. And then we saw earlier um, one particular instrument, um, well, it's, not, it's a very large instrument, that it looked like a spider. The, or, well, yeah, it's a robot. A robot, a robot. Yeah, so, so uh, what that is, is this, is this very, very smart electromechanical system that is, a, that is placed by the surgeon at the patient's side and allows you to operate with great fin finesse and precision uh, internally to them. So it gives you an enormous amount of dexterity uh, at the instrument tips. Uh, the surgeon sits r r r r r uh, away from it, uh, doesn't even scrub any anymore to do that, uh, and, and looks down a set of, of binoculars, which give a magnified 3D view of the inside of the, per of the pe person, so a very zoomed-in view to it. Um, and it's great. It's still, though, fully dependent on the decisions that the surgeon makes, and that's still where uh, where I think we can we can improve things a little bit more. So I think we have really great degrees of dex dex dexterity and precision, but we have to uh, interpret things as, as as we see them, and that's really what a lot of our training is, is involves. So people might spend a decade or more learning to be a surgeon, which means being able to uh, convert in, in in your head. What, 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 what you see to what that means to the patient and then to what you're trying to do to cure the disease of it. And moving into decision support uh, through things like artificial in, intelligence is probably a very helpful step. I definitely wouldn't have thought artificial intelligence had a role in, in healthcare. Do you want to just maybe expand a bit on that? Uh, well, lots of people are interested in it in things like diary management or scheduling and, and that kind of stuff. But where we need it in surgery is just to be better for the patient in front of us. Now, we know that uh, ex experience is a good thing for a surgeon to have. The more you've seen something, the more the better equipped you are to deal with it the next time around. So uh, by accumulating our experience, uh, we get better. By sharing our experience, we get better. And very often in surgical meetings and in our 
literature and books, people are sharing their experience with other people. So we know that collating and collecting experience helps us make for better decisions for each person. So artificial intelligence uh, has that ability to bring all a whole bunch of collected knowledge together in real time, in moments, and apply it to that one person so that you can get some support in your decisions. Even experts sometimes aren't quite sure what they're seeing or what that means. And the traditional way means you have to take some samples and send it off to the lab, and that can take a few days to come back. But in surgery, you have to know when you know uh, right away. So that ability to apply that in moments is something we're working on uh, a lot right now. Using computer vision, that means how a computer sees a picture is a little different to how how a human does. And exploiting what we know about diseases by giving uh, certain dyes, quite simple dyes, that change uh, in contrast the disease versus the normal tissue. To close out the episode, I want to tell you one last story about the matter. If you've been listening to the show or heard older episodes, you may know my health went through a pretty difficult patch. It's not something that I've talked about much in detail on the show over the years, but since this episode is about the matter, it seems fitting to explain it a bit. I can vividly remember when I first arrived in the hospital. I was in the emergency room at Christmas 2008, and it was a pretty terrifying time. After numerous tests, I was eventually diagnosed with Crohn's disease. The medical teams in the matter first tried all treatments to avoid surgery, but this failed to stop the advance of the disease. I had no choice in the end but to get the surgery and this was a daunting route to take because surgical treatments for Crohn's disease can be pretty invasive and at times painful. Over what has been a remarkable and at times challenging journey, a surgeon in the matter, Jürgen Muslow, carried out a series of operations that transformed my health. He and his team removed my entire colon and then reconstructed a new one from my small intestines. I'll go into this detail not to overshare, but just as an example of the phenomenal, life-changing work that goes on in the matter every day. Every time I return to the hospital for checkups, I often wonder, is the person walking in the door ahead of me, starting out on the journey I did 10 years ago? However, it's reassuring that they are in the right place, because while I know it's not an easy road ahead of them, the matter provides the best care available. I wouldn't have regained my health without their excellent care and treatment. As I often say, it changed my life. Because of the treatment I received there, I've become a supporter of the Matter Foundation to help other patients, maybe your family and your friends, to get the same level of care I did. The Matter has the best doctors and nurses, but to work effectively, they need the best facilities, equipment and treatments to care for patients. The Foundation supports the Matter Hospital's wonderful ethos that everyone should have access to the best medical care irrespective of their means. If you believe that too and want to find out more about how you can help the hospital, visit matterfoundation.ie. As someone who started on a journey in the hospital 10 years ago, I know the Matter, with the support of the Foundation, changed my life. So visit matter, M-A-T-E-R, foundation.ie. You may never know how much it means to patients like myself. That address one last time is matterfoundation.ie. All that's left now is to say a sincere thanks to Helen Madden and Ronan Cahill for talking to me about the matter and Debbie Colleen for her work in making this podcast possible. Until next time, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.